And I always worry that the debate around AI and ethics is one as though there's something new and magical. And there's nothing new and magical about this technology, except for one small thing. Well, hello there. This is Milena, and welcome to another episode of Scientific Mavericks podcast. This episode is a part of our new Academia Focus series. For these episodes, I will be joined by my colleague and co-host, Alvaro. In this series, we're going to bring to you the most interesting and relevant research areas and the academics behind them. At Hybrid, we are passionate about bringing new thinking, ideas, and technology to life. We believe this can help change attitudes, lives, and ultimately the world. Hivery is at the forefront of reinventing the way retail companies and channels make business decisions today. Hivery is pioneering hyperlocal retailing by combining artificial intelligence, operations research, and human-centered design models to help CPG companies and retailers generate a return on physical retail space investment. Hivery does this through simultaneously optimizing and localizing product, price, space, and promotions. And today, it is my great pleasure to introduce Toby Walsh, a leading researcher in artificial intelligence and a professor of artificial intelligence at the University of New South Wales and Data61. He has been elected a fellow of the Australian Academy of Science, a fellow of the Association for the Advancement of Artificial Intelligence, and a fellow of the European Association for Artificial Intelligence. So, without further ado, we'll kick this episode off with Toby sharing his story and his role over the last few decades in pushing AI technology to more maturity and helping businesses to wake up to and employ this technology. My AI story is one that goes way back. It goes back to when I was a, a young boy reading too much science fiction and reading about a future full of robots and intelligent machines. And I started with the desire then the dream then to, to build such machines and have spent the last 30 or 40 odd years uh, trying to realize that dream. And for most of that time, it has been a dream and no one's really been too concerned. But in the last five or 10 years, it really has been a step change in what we can do. And so increasingly in the last couple of years, I've spent much more time, not just on the science of trying to, to program machines to behave a bit more smartly than they do, but also on the impact that's going to have to discuss with government and civil society about the, the opportunities and the challenges. Um, as with any technology, there are good things and bad things that the technology will bring and to try and make sure that we get more of the good and less of the bad. In one of your TED Talks, you have said that just answering the media questions is a full-time job in itself. Are you thinking about hiring someone to fill this position? <laughs> Well, that's the, I mean, that's the funny thing. Until a few years ago, I never took any calls from the media. And now I get calls every day about the impacts that technologies like AI are having upon our lives. Um, and it is almost a full-time job uh, answering those queries. I, I do feel a responsibility as a scientist working in the field, uh, someone with uh, perhaps a certain amount of authority to try and communicate the challenges. Because Part of the problem is that a lot of what's driven is driven by Hollywood and the sorts of fears that, that blockbusters give us. And those are quite the wrong things to worry about. It's much more mundane issues, certainly to begin with, than the idea that we might have Terminator robots and sentient machines 
is so far away in our future. And there are so many much more pressing problems um, to do with climate change, to do with global pandemics that we need to address. And AI is going to be part of the mix um, in how we deal with those problems as well. So what are some of the problems that you think are more pressing right now that society should be looking towards solving? Well, of course, the, the biggie, the one that we should, we should all be worrying about uh, once we've cracked the COVID virus, which we will do, of course. I mean, this is, there's, there's no technical reason why in a year or so's time our lives can't return to normal. But the pressing problem left then, of course, is climate change. Um, and behind that is the increasing inequality we see with our society that is fracturing um, the cohesion that is required for our society to work. And we see this in the fractured political discourse we have. We see this in the growing economic inequalities within our society that are causing deep rifts, deep divisions within our world. Yeah, so we have a huge to-do list as human beings, right? But in addition to all the issues you have just mentioned, one of the efforts you have been driving is a movement against the adoption of lethal autonomous weapons. What are the challenges we are facing as a society to regulate this technology? People often talk about it, the media often talk about killer robots, which is perhaps the media-friendly way of talking about lethal autonomous weapons. This is where you hand over to machines the ability to decide who lives and dies, that actually take uh, humans out of the loop and actually have computers make all the decisions. Uh, this isn't Terminator. It isn't uh, the sorts of uh, sentient robots that you see in science fiction movies. It's much more simpler technologies that are much nearer to us. All of us are familiar with the idea of seeing drones flying above the skies of Afghanistan and Iraq. Well, those are still semi-autonomous. There's still a human in the loop. There's still a soldier in a container in Nevada who's actually flying those drones. Well, actually, they're not doing much of the flying anymore. They just give coordinates of places to get to, but making the final decision with their finger on the trigger to set off their hellfire missile and kill someone on the ground. But it's not a big technical leap to remove that human, to have a computer make all the decisions to identify, track, and target someone on the ground and, and uh, to kill them. And indeed, sometime in the next few months, you will see Turkey field on its border with Syria, uh, fully autonomous kamikaze drones that use face recognition software to identify targets and to destroy them. That's the same sort of face recognition software that's in your smartphone. Uh, and all of us have witnessed um, problems and errors that the, that software makes. So to think that, that we're actually giving those sorts of machines the ability to actually decide who to kill is a frightening world that it takes to us too. And so uh, myself, as, as long as, as well as many of my colleagues, thousands of my colleagues around the world have been joining the calls and the campaigns to stop killer robots, as it's called, uh, which is lobbying the UN and elsewhere, that this is a technology that we should regulate. And we have regulated various technologies. We've regulated nuclear weapons. We've regulated biological weapons. We've regulated chemical weapons. We've regulated blinding lasers, uh, cluster munitions. It's a whole bunch of technologies that we decided were distasteful ways of fighting war and unnecessary to be used to fighting war uh, that don't actually make the world a safer place, actually make the world a less safe place. Um, and so I um, found myself... An, uh, an accidental activist in many respects. I never set out uh, to do this, but I found myself in a position where I could 
um, speak to various people about this and have been somewhat surprised to have spoken at the United Nations nearly half a dozen times now on this topic and to have had meetings with ambassadors from around the world um, and lobbied governments uh, to take this issue seriously. And there are discussions ongoing at the UN. Nearly 30 nations now have called for a preemptive ban. We've still got a, a long way to go because the UN works by consensus and there are 200 some nations that need to join the call. But nevertheless, there is increasing momentum behind the idea that these are technologies that we should regulate. And that's a, a view that myself and, and many of my colleagues working in AI share and one that I hope will become uh, law around the world before too long. How would you suggest we can regulate the usage of this technology as a society? And are there any lessons from the past we can all look back to and learn from? Well, the first and foremost thing that has to happen is that we have to decide as a society that it is morally repugnant to fight, to hand over killing to machines. Uh, we decided that with, with chemical weapons. Uh, we decided that after seeing the horrors of the First World War, the, the misuse of chemical weapons there. And from that, pretty much everything else flows in quite quick succession. We then have regulated there as various UN treaties that ban the use of chemical weapons. And arms companies, as a consequence, don't sell and develop chemical weapons. It's not watertight. Occasionally, chemical weapons do get used. In fact, the last time I was actually speaking in the United Nations was one of those weeks where there was a terrible tragedy in, in Syria where chemical weapons were used against largely the civilian population and 70-odd people were, were murdered. But gratifying the world uh, united. There were headlines around the world condemning those actions. There were sanctions put in place against the Syrians. Even the Russians condemned the actions at that time. Um, and so that has largely limited uh, the use and misuse of, of such weapons. And I think that's what we could hope for the same with uh, lethal autonomous weapons. We're not going to be able to keep the technology inside a box. These are the same very same technologies that are going to go into your autonomous cars that will identify pedestrians, will track them and avoid them. There'll be the same algorithms that will identify targets, track them and kill them. Um, so we're going to want those technologies because they're going to bring great benefits to our lives. Um, but we we can regulate how those technologies get used and we can we can ensure that when they get misused in such ways that, that we come together as nations and as citizens and condemn their action. And we make sure, above all, that arms companies are not selling them. Because if we want, to, if we want them to fall into the, all the wrong hands, we just have to um, allow arms companies to produce them. And then they will end up in the arms bazaars and black markets of the world. And they will become widely available and fall into all the wrong hands. There will be plenty of terrorists and rogue nations who will use these against, use these against civilians. Yeah, I really agree with that. On the same note, I, I can't help but notice how the coronavirus outbreak has demonstrated how bad a challenge can get when we are not fully prepared. As Toby have just suggested, maybe as a society we should be taking a more active role in regulating advancing technologies that can pose more harm than good, and proactively either ban them or put the proper checks and balances around them. In the description of the podcast, you will be able to find some resources to explore around this topic, and you can even sign the petition if you agree that banning lethal autonomous weapons is the right path that we should follow.
Well, on a happier note, Toby, <laughs> you have written two books for the general public, and your latest book is called 2062. Can you tell us why it is titled 2062, and perhaps dive a little deeper into what the audience can expect from it? So, so my latest book is titled 2062, which was the estimate of three or four hundred of my colleagues as to when machines might be as capable as humans. I should say that there was a huge variance in their answers. The eight percent of them said never, but ninety-two percent of them said it would happen sometime in the next fifty or a hundred years. Although there was a, a wide spread, and the the median answer was twenty sixty-two. The the mean answer, the average answer, was never because eight percent of them said never. So, but the median, fifty percent of them said before twenty sixty-two, fifty percent said after. And what what what's important about the number is it? You know, it's not going to happen. On April the fifteenth in twenty sixty two at four p.m. No one has any idea,、um, but no one was saying it was going to take ten years. There's a huge step still to to build machines that that match humans in all of our capabilities. But equally, few of them were saying it was going to take more than a hundred years. It's something that plausibly will happen in our lifetime, and almost surely will happen in the lifetime of our children. And that's something I think it's worth thinking about and preparing for. That.、Um, We got to where we are by being smart,、um, for better or for worse. We are the smartest creature on the planet. It's in our name, Homo sapiens, the smart one. It's rather vain of us to call ourselves that, but we did. We did turn out to be not the the fastest or the quickest or the beast with the sharpest teeth, but the one with the smartest brain, and that has allowed us, for better or for worse, in some cases it seems worse, to have dominated the planet and everything we see around us. Is the product of our intelligence、um, that has allowed us to live, mostly speaking, better and better quality lives as、uh, civilization has advanced. So I think it's worth stopping to think about well, what's the world going to be like in about fifty years' time when maybe we aren't the smartest thing on the planet anymore and we've invented machines that are smarter. I was greatly interested in reading Yuval Harari's book Homo Deus, and I found much to agree with. But also, the fundamental message of his book, the Homo Deus, that we would, in some sense, be becoming like gods, was the one that I profoundly disagreed with, and that the thing that would distinguish us from these amazing, smarter machines is our mortality and our humanity. Unlike gods who are immortal and omnipotent, we will always be mortal, and. Human in our failings,、um, and those are the things that are going to be, I suspect, the most important things moving forward. And we already see that. So I wanted to correct Yuval Harari's message that we were set to become gods by augmenting and extending ourselves with the machines, by pointing out, I suspect, that the machines might take the sweat, but what will be left will those things that make us very human. Our mortality and human weaknesses, which make the human experience one that's so painfully rich and beautiful in its same time. What is your favorite chapter in the book, and why? <laughs> the ah,、oh, it's a great question. The, my favorite chapter in the book is the chapter at the end called "The End,"、uh, because <laughs> actually all the chapters are called "The End." They're called "The End of Something." So the The, the first chapter is called "The End of Us."
another chapter on the end of work, the end of war, the end of politics, the end of privacy. It sounds a bit depressing. I hope it isn't as depressing as the chapter titles make out, but they point out the risks, the risks uh, that we face um, if machines take over all our jobs, if um, our political discourse is overwhelmed by Twitter bots and fake news generated by, by machines. These challenges that we're already starting to see the beginnings of today, much of the book is pointing out some of the challenges that faced us. But in the final chapter is all about the opportunities. Although the chapter is called The End, the chapter begins by saying, I couldn't end at this point without pointing out the many levers we still have, the many opportunities that we have to make sure that this technology is used to improve the quality of all of our lives. And we have one good example, one good historical precedent here, because we've not, this is not the first time that a technology has changed our society in dramatic ways. This is, by some reckonings, the fourth industrial revolution. We've been through three of them before. And the previous revolutions in, in how we run our society, how we run our industries, have greatly increased the quality of our lives. People forget, even in the developed world, life expectancy has almost doubled. If you go back to the 1800s, people lived to about 40 odd years old, even in a developed country like Australia. Well, we now live to almost twice that. And inequality until very recently was decreasing within our society. Billions have been lifted out of poverty around the world. Uh, simple diseases that used like smallpox and, and, and cholera that used to kill thousands of people have been eliminated. And so our lives have greatly been greatly improved by the introduction of technologies in, in industrialization into our lives. But also, it's, I think it's a, it's a good lesson to look at, at how that happened. And it didn't happen by allowing the owners of the means of production, the owners of the factories, to take all the profits. We did a, a lot of structural changes to our society to ensure that all of us shared the benefits. We introduced unions to protect the rights of workers. We introduced labor laws so that we didn't send children down the mines anymore. Uh, we introduced universal education so that all of us were educated for those for the new jobs. We introduced a welfare state in most countries so that if you're unemployed, you weren't in the poorhouse. We introduced uh, various forms of, of universal health care in most countries so that irrespective of how much you weren't, you could still actually expect a, a quality uh, of healthcare. And so we made some very large structural changes to spread the benefits around. And I think one thing that we can see now is that this, this next fourth industrial revolution is not being shared around and that maybe we do have to consider equally radical changes. And the, the final chapter of the book discusses some of the opportunities that there are, things like universal basic income that we might have to consider, negative tax rates, even just trying to tax the tech companies a bit more forcefully um, than we do at the moment. It's ridiculous that the, some of the most profitable businesses on the planet today pay some of the lowest rates of tax. They pay roughly half the tax rates of established businesses. And so we should perhaps try and make sure that the benefits are spread around equally. Uh, the book doesn't try to be too political. I am at the end of the day a scientist. I was somewhat surprised when I finished writing the book. When you, when you finish writing a book, it's always never quite the book you set out to be. And it has somewhat different message than one you began because it's a, it's a learning journey on the process. And it was, a, in some respects, a more political book than I had ever imagined I would ever write. 
and the final chapter doesn't actually pick winners. It doesn't say we should do X, Y, or Z. It just says there are these levers. We could try some of these levers. These are societal choices. These, I think part of the problem so far has been that it's been Silicon Valley making the decisions and it's not being engaged with the rest of society. These are decisions that impact upon all of us and all of us should be made involved in the making of these decisions. And so I'm careful not to try and actually say what are the right policies, but just to say there's a whole raft of policies we could, could consider that would allow us to address these challenges. And so I hope the book ends on a hopeful note that these are technologies that could take away the dirty, the dull, the difficult and the dangerous from our lives and let us sit back and enjoy the finer things in life. So in one of your TED Talks, you discuss challenges AI poses to humanity and proposes split into four dimensions, fairness, transparency, privacy and robustness. Do you mind elaborating a bit further on them? There are a number of ways you can cut the cake and many of the challenges that I think technologies like AI bring fall into one of these four categories of, of fairness and transparency. It's important that these technologies allow us to invade people's privacies in new and on a scale that we've never been able to see before. So privacy is often paramount. Um, and something else that we're quickly discovering is that these technologies are very brittle. They break in, in unexpected ways. It's not like human intelligence. Humans are incredibly robust in their ability to make decisions, whereas computer systems, anyone who's had the pleasure to program them knows they're incredibly brittle. You change the problem in a very small way and it falls over dramatically. And again, if we're putting these systems in places where, where they're critical to people's safety and security, that brittleness is something to be very concerned about. So those are some of the dimensions to consider. Uh, what's important is that th those aren't new. Those are things that we've worried about for many other existing technologies. And I always worry that the debate around AI and ethics is one as though there's something new and magical. And there's nothing new and magical about this technology, except for one small thing. And this is fundamentally new, is another A word, it's autonomy, that we may be giving machines the right to make decisions and act in our world. And we may have to then worry about accountability of those actions, because those actions may have life or death consequences. And that's why much of the debate around AI ethics has, has focused on two areas where autonomy is incredibly important. One is autonomous weapons, and then the other is autonomous cars, driverless cars. And so you end up talking about things like infamous trolley problem about cars barreling along the road, and there's someone steps into the road, and then the car has to make a fateful decision. Does it drive into the uh, person who stepped onto the road, the pedestrian, and kill them? Or does it drive into the brick wall on the side of the road, perhaps killing the, the occupants of the car? These difficult moral questions that we face. But it's worth pointing out, even that is not a new moral question. You may have to face in a split second one of those uh, trolley problem questions. You'll be driving along, someone steps into the road, and you have to make that decision in, in that split second. And what's interesting is if you look at the road rules around the planet, nowhere is it said in any of those road rules what you should do. Should you kill the fewest people? Uh, should you protect yourself? and kill whoever steps into the road, you are entitled to do that. And it highlights the challenge that computers pose because we have to answer this question in advance now because we have to write the code. We have to decide what the machine is going to do before the situation presents itself. Whereas in our real lives, we only have to consider after the event, did you behave in a responsible way? If you did, 
um, then you'll be fine. If you didn't, maybe you're going to find yourself in a court of law facing a manslaughter charge. Um, but we never have to specify in advance what you should do. Well, with computers, and the frustrating thing about computers, as anyone who's programmed them knows, is how literal they are. They do exactly and only what we tell them to do, is that we have to decide these things up front in a very precise, very mathematical way. We have to work out what should the machine do when it's faced one of these life or death decisions? What is fair? What is equitable? Um, we have to decide in very precise mathematical ways so we can program them to do that. This flows very nicely into the transparency dimension, and oftentimes AI recommendations are a black box and don't come with explanations. How do you see the issue of providing solutions with meaningful and clear explanations to generating insights being solved? Where transparency is possible, I think, of course, it's a it's a wonderful thing mostly to have. There are a few few situations where you shouldn't be more transparent. But equally, I think of all of those four ethical values, fairness, transparency, privacy, and robustness, I think it's the most overrated. Um, if you look at, for example, IBM's ethical principles for their deployment of AI, uh, they put it at number one. And I put it at number four, if not lower down the list, because where it's possible, it's, it's desirable, but I wouldn't put it above all the other values that we take in there. It's a means to an end, not an end in itself. It's worth pointing out that humans are not transparent. Uh, my doctor is incredibly uh, lacking in transparency in their decision making, yet I put my life in her hands. I'm willing to trust my life with her hands like most of us are. The medical system is one that is put in the checks and safeguards so that I don't have to understand all of medicine. I can just go to my doctor and say, what should I do? Uh, whatever it is, I trust her judgment and I trust if she kills too many of her patients, she gets struck off the register. If a drug kills too many patients, it gets eliminated. Um, and there are plentiful actually, settings where transparency would actually hinder in people, for example, blowing whistles and things like this. And it's possible it's, that many of the systems that we're going to trust our lives on will not be transparent, but nevertheless, we can build systems around which we can put our lives, our trust in such systems. If transparency is the most overrated among these four ethical values, what do you think is the most important value then? The, the most important values are justice, so values like fairness, uh, autonomy, respecting the autonomy of humans, and those sorts of values that we, that we respect people's abilities to, to act and to be treated fairly and equitably in the world. I researched some examples of how AI is being used in the criminal system, either to aid the sentencing process or to estimate the tendency of a convicted criminal to reoffend. And in many cases, there is evidence of bias against different populations. What are your thoughts on algorithm discrimination and what steps we can take to avoid it when it comes to decisions involving high stakes? This example, the, the use of, of algorithms in the criminal justice system to help decide sentencing and, and the discovery that these algorithms were incredibly biased against people of color is a, a wonderful example of the pitfalls waiting us when, when we actually hand over decisions to machines. These are some of the toughest, most severe decisions we make as a society, depriving people of their liberty and one that we should take with the greatest of caution. And if we think about it, we've handed over those decisions to, in many cases, a uh, 
a jury of our peers and something that I think we should be very careful about changing and handing over such responsibility to machines. Many reasons why these systems could be biased. They're trained on historical data and by its very nature, historical data is biased. It's biased by the system in which that data was collected. Maybe more people of color were stopped by police officers and were arrested. Maybe they received harsher sentences within the judicial system in the past. That's something maybe we actually don't want to perpetuate. And even if we're aware of the biases in historical data, it's very easy to fall into traps. For example, with this system used to decide sentencing, they didn't include race as one of the inputs because they knew if they did, that it would obviously pick up a bias against people of color. Uh, but they included zip code as one of the inputs. And we all of us know that in many parts of the United States, zip code is a proxy for race. There are black neighborhoods and white neighborhoods. And so the system very quickly discovered which were the black neighborhoods and discriminated against those people. Even if we deal with all of those issues, and those are non-trivial issues, there is just the mathematical challenge, which is, uh, well, what does it mean to be unbiased? There, you can actually prove mathematically there is no one way to be fair. We've actually come up with 21 mathematically different definitions of what fairness means. Does it mean fairness of uh, equality of opportunity or quality of outcome? And if you look at the, all the 21 definitions, you can prove that they're mathematically incompatible with each other, that you have to pick one or the other. These throw harsh questions deep questions that we've struggled to answer in the past, but in very now very precise mathematical senses as to, well, what does it really mean for a system to be unbiased? And we'll have to answer those questions if we hand the decisions over to machines, as we will do um, in certain settings, whether that be to decide insurance rates or welfare payments. But I fundamentally think there's probably some areas which are just too high stakes that we should not hand them over to machines ever, um, because we'll be giving up an important part of our humanity. And at the end of the day, that's the sort of world that Huxley and Orwell have already told us about. It's not the sort of world I think most of us want to wake up in. So tapping on the same issue of us being forced into lockdown now and how conflicting goals interact, do you think it's beneficial or detrimental to society if the government has full access to private individual information during a pandemic? Or, in other words, how privacy can in general be helpful and desirable, but under limited conditions can go against society-wide goals? You pose a really challenging question that, that democratic societies have to walk, which is how much can we impose ourselves on the privacy of our citizens? And it's an incredibly delicate line that we need to walk. And we certainly saw that China was able to, to control the coronavirus perhaps much quicker than we could. You had to, you know, there was an app that you had to download onto your smartphone that had a green uh, or red background according to whether you were allowed to be out and about. I'm not sure that we literally want to lock people up in that way in our society, whether um, we actually want a society that's a little more open than that. Orwell got one thing wrong with Big Brother. It's not people that watch other people. There's a limit to how much you can do that. East Germany, I think, demonstrated what the limit was. You had about one third of the nation watching about one third of the nation at one time, at maximum at one point. With technologies like AI and face recognition, you can literally monitor a whole nation. You can find people within a city across a nation 
um, with cameras, with smartphones. That's an immensely powerful tool when you want to control a pandemic. It's also an incredibly powerful tool when you want to suppress a nation. And we have to sacrifice certain things and maybe put up with a more slow response to the pandemic because we value our privacy, because we value our right to question the government and to go out and protest, for example, anonymously. It's still the case today, if you go out in a crowd of a thousand people and protest, you're essentially anonymous. You can't be tracked down. The government can't um, arrest you for going about your legal right to demonstrate against the status quo. But we now have technologies, face recognition, smartphones, and Bluetooth sniffing and so on, that does allow us to identify people. There was a famous case last year where a criminal was recognized in a rock concert of 50,000 people in China using face recognition software. So we now have the technology, if we so choose, that you could pick a person out in a crowd, you could find a person in the city, and that changes the nature of your ability to protest about the status quo and to make the world a better place. And even if it's not used, this idea that we live in a panopticon, that, that you're always visible, changes just what you can do. Um, and so I think we need to be very careful as we think about how we roll out these technologies and the sacrifices we may give up um, to, for example, suppress uh, the coronavirus and the freedoms we may give up and whether we may accept worse outcomes to maintain those values that we fought for for the last couple of hundred years that we highly prize within our societies and that technologies, if we're not careful, could take away from us. If you enjoyed this podcast, you'll be pleased to know that there is a second part to this. Alvaro, do you want to give a little teaser on what are some of the topics we'll be discussing? Sure. Well, uh, we will discuss ethical challenges businesses face today and how they can overcome them, and also how the retail industry can benefit from employing AI technology. And we will also dive into what talent parents and businesses can do now to better prepare for the second half of the century when new technologies reshape the world we know today. So stay tuned and till the next time, everyone.